Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 7 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Eleanor of Provence, Chapter 2, Part 1. When Henry III appointed Eleanor Regent of England, he left the great seal in her custody, but enclosed in its casket, sealed with the impression of his own privy seal, and with the signets of his brother, Richard, Earl of Cornwall, and others of his council. It was only to be opened on occasions of extreme urgency. Eleanor was directed to govern by the advice of her royal brother-in-law, but the regal power was vested in her, and we find that pleas were holden before her, and the king's council, in the court of exchequer, during Henry's absence in Gascony. At this time, says Maddox, the queen was custos regi, and sat vice regis. We have thus an instance of a queen consort, performing not only the functions of a sovereign, in the absence of the monarch, but acting as a judge in the highest court of judicature, curia regis. There can be no doubt, but that this princess took her seat on the king's bench. No sooner had Queen Eleanor got the reins of empire in her own hands, unrestrained by the counterbalancing power of the great Earl of Leicester, who had volunteered his services to King Henry against the insurgent Gascons, then she proceeded to play the sovereign in a more despotic manner, in one instance at least, than had ever been attempted by the mightiest monarch of the Norman line. Remembering her former disputes with the city of London, she now took the opportunity of gratifying her revenge and covetousness at the same time, by demanding of their magistrates the payment of a large sum, which she insisted they owed her, for Aurum Regine, or Queen Gold, a due which the queens of England were entitled to claim on every tenth mark paid to the king, as voluntary fines for the royal goodwill, in the renewals of leases on crown lands, or the granting of charters. Eleanor, in this instance, most unreasonably demanded her queen gold on various enormous fines, that had been unrighteously and vexatiously exhorted by the king, from the plundered merchants and citizens of London. For the non-payment of this unjust claim, Eleanor, in a very summary manner, committed the sheriffs of London, Richard Picard and John de Northampton, to the Marshalsea prison in the year 1254, and the same year she again committed them, together with Richard Hartle, Draper, the mayor, to the same prison, for arrears of an aid towards the war in Gascony. 
These arbitrary proceedings of the Queen Regent were regarded with indignant astonishment by a city governed by laws peculiar to itself, London being, in fact, a republic within a monarchy, whose privileges had hitherto been respected by the most despotic sovereigns. It had been hoped that Richard, Earl of Cornwall, Eleanor's coadjutor in the delegated regal power, would have restrained her from such reckless use, or rather we should say abuse, of the authority, with which she had been invested by her absent lord. But since his marriage with her sister, the prince had ceased to oppose the queen in any of her designs. Thus the queen and the countess of Cornwall made common cause, contriving to govern between them the king and his brother, and, through them, the whole realm, according to their own pleasure, whether it were for good or evil. In the beginning of the year, Eleanor received instructions from the king to summon a parliament, for the purpose of demanding an aid for carrying on the war in Gascony. But finding it impossible to obtain this grant, Queen Eleanor sent the king five hundred marks from her own private coffers, as a New Year's gift, for the immediate relief of his most pressing exigencies. Henry then directed his brother to exhort from the luckless Jews, the sum required, for the nuptial festivities of his heir. As soon as Henry received the glittering fruits of this iniquity, he sent for Eleanor, to assist him in squandering it away, in the light and vain expenses, in which they mutually delighted, and to grace with her presence the bridal of their eldest son, Prince Edward. Eleanor, who loved power well, but pleasure better, on this welcome summons, resigned the cares of government to the Earl of Cornwall, and, with her sister, the Countess of Cornwall, her second son, Prince Edmund, and a courtly retinue of ladies, knights, and nobles, sailed from Portsmouth on the 15th of May, and, landing at Bordeaux, was joyfully welcomed by her husband and their heir, Prince Edward, whom she had not seen for upwards of a year. She then crossed the Pyrenees with her son, and having assisted at the solemnization of his nuptials with the Infanta Eleonora of Castile, returned with the royal bride and bridegroom to King Henry, who was waiting for their arrival at Bordeaux. Instead of sailing from thence to England, the queen persuaded Henry to accept the invitation of St. Louis, her brother-in-law, to pass some days at his court with their train. At Chartres, Eleanor enjoyed the pleasure of embracing her sister, the Queen of France, who, with King Louis and their nobles, there met and welcomed their royal guests, and conducted them with all due pomp to Paris. Here Louis assigned the palace of the old temple, for the residence of his royal guests, a domicile that could almost furnish accommodations for an army. The morning after their arrival, Henry distributed very abundant alms among the Parisian poor, and made a splendid entertainment for the relatives of his queen, which was, in memory of its magnificence, and the number of crowned heads present, called the Feast of Kings. Contemporary chroniclers record that neither Ahasuerus, Arthur, nor Charlemagne ever equaled this feast in any of their far-famed doings. King Henry sat at table on the right hand of the King of France, and the King of Navarre on the left. King Louis, with the princely courtesy and meekness which so much characterized the royal saint of France, contended much that the king of England should take the place of honor, but Henry refused to do so, alleging that the king of France was his suzerain, in allusion to the lands which he held of him as a vassal peer of France, 
on which Louis, in acknowledgment of the compliment, softly rejoined, Would to God that every one had his rights without offence. At this memorable entertainment, Queen Eleanor enjoyed the happiness of a reunion with her four sisters, and their children, and her mother, the Countess of Provence. After the royal family of England had received, during a sojourn of eight days in Paris, all the honor, which the power of the king and the wealth of the fair realm of France could bestow, they took their leave of these pleasant scenes. The king and court of France accompanied them one day's journey. Eleanor and her husband landed at Dover on the 5th of January, 1255, and on the 27th made their public entry into London with extraordinary pomp. They received a present of 100 pounds sterling, which the citizens of London were accustomed to give on such occasions. But as Henry did not seem satisfied, they added a rich piece of plate of exquisite workmanship, which pleased, but certainly did not content, this most acquisitive of all our monarchs. Since, a few days after, he exhorted a fine of three thousand marks from them, on the frivolous pretense of the escape of a priest from Newgate, who was accused of murder. It was very evident to the citizens that Eleanor had not forgotten their resistance of her illegal exactions, for much strife ensued regarding her claims. Eleanor, who was probably ambitious of being the mother of as many crowned heads, as those by whom she had seen the Countess of Provence proudly surrounded at the Feast of Kings, was much elated at the Pope sending her second son, Prince Edmund, then about ten years old, a ring, whereby he professed to invest him with the kingdom of Sicily. But the delight of King Henry at the imaginary preferment of his favorite son exceeded all bounds. He caused a seal to be made, with the effigies of the young prince enthroned, bearing the scepter and orb of sovereignty, and crowned with the royal diadem of Sicily. He next prepared to rush madly into an expensive and unpopular war, for the purpose of establishing the chimerical claims of the boy to this shadowy dignity. Henry was only deterred from pursuing his design by rumors of an alarming nature, touching the king and queen of Scots. Queen Eleanor, having been informed that they were deprived of royal power, and kept in close confinement by the regents, Sir John Balliol and the Comyns, who were the next heirs to the Scottish crown. The maternal anxiety of the queen, being very painfully excited by these reports, she privately dispatched her physician, a person in whose sagacity she could confide, into Scotland, to ascertain the real situation of her daughter. This trusty agent ascertained that the king and queen of Scots were both imprisoned in the castle of Edinburgh, but in separate apartments, and having succeeded in gaining a secret interview with the young queen, she gave him a lamentable account of her treatment, ever since her marriage. Having been rudely torn, she said, from her royal husband, and kept from him in a doleful damp place, the bad air of which had seriously injured her health, and, so far from having any share in the government, they were treated with the utmost contumely, and were in daily peril of their lives. While the fate of the young king and queen of Scotland were in suspense, the maternal anxiety of Eleanor was of the most poignant nature. She accompanied her royal lord on a northern campaign, which he undertook on this occasion, constantly urging him to exert himself for the benefit of his child. Before the Earl of Gloucester, whom he had sent to the aid of the young queen, 
could forward news of his mission into England. Eleanor's trouble of mind brought on a violent illness, and she was confined to her bed at Wark Castle, with small hopes of her life. At last tidings came, that Gloucester and Mansell had gained admittance into the castle of Edinburgh, by assuming the dress of tenants of Balliol the governor, and in this disguise were enabled to give secret access to their followers, by whom the garrison was surprised, and the rescued king and queen restored to each other. Their cruel jailers, Balliol and Ross, were brought to King Henry at Alnwick to answer for their treasons. But on their throwing themselves at his feet and imploring for mercy, he forgave them. But as Balliol was his own subject, he mulked him in a heavy fine, which he reserved for his own private use. He then sent for the young king and queen of Scotland to join him at Alnwick, where the king of Scotland solemnly chose him to be his guardian during the rest of his minority. Queen Eleanor's illness continued to detain her at Wark Castle, even after her mind was relieved of the anxiety which had caused her sickness. Her indisposition and extreme desire of her daughter's company are certified in a letter of King Henry to his son-in-law, the king of Scotland, dated the 20th of September, 1255, in which he specifies that the Queen of Scotland is to remain with the sick queen, her mother, his beloved consort, at Wark Castle, till the said queen is sufficiently recovered to be capable of traveling southward. On Eleanor's convalescence, the King and Queen of Scotland accompanied her and King Henry to Woodstock, where she kept her court with more than ordinary splendor, to celebrate their deliverance from their late adversity. There were then three kings and three queens at Woodstock with their retinues. Richard, Earl of Cornwall, having obtained his election as successor to the Emperor of Germany, had assumed the title of King of the Romans, while his consort, Queen Eleanor's sister, took also royal state and title. After exhausting all the pleasures that the Sylvan Palace of Woodstock, its extensive chase and pleasance, could afford, they proceeded to London, where, in the month of February, the three kings and queens made their public entry, wearing their crowns and royal robes. All this pomp and festivity was succeeded by a season of gloom and care. The departure of the king and queen of Scotland was followed by that of the new king and queen of the Romans, who went to be crowned at Isle la chapelle carrying with them seven hundred thousand pounds in sterling money. A dreadful famine was added to the public embarrassment, occasioned by the drain on the specie. It was at this season of public ministry that Eleanor, blinded by the selfish spirit of covetousness to the impolicy of her conduct, chose to renew her demands of Queen Gold on the city of London. These the king enforced by writs of exchequer, himself sitting there in person, and compelling the reluctant sheriffs to distrain the citizens for the same. This year the queen lost her little daughter, the Princess Catherine, whom she had borne to King Henry during his absence in the Gascon War. The king caused a most sumptuous monument to be erected for her in Westminster Abbey. There is among the tower records an order to his treasurer and chamberlains of the treasury to deliver to Master Simon de Wills five marks and a half for his expenses in bringing from London a certain brass image to be set on the royal infant's tomb, and for paying to Simon de Gloucester, the king's goldsmith, for a silver image for the like purpose, the sum of seventy marks. 
the ardent desire of the king and queen for the realization of their second son's title as king of sicily meeting with no encouragement a small piece of stage effect was devised by the sovereign by which he foolishly imagined he should move his obdurate barons to grant the pecuniary supplies for his darling project having caused the young prince to be attired in the graceful costume of a sicilian king he at the opening of the parliament presented him to the assembly with the following speech behold here good people my son edmund whom god of his gracious goodness hath called to the excellency of kingly dignity how comely and well worthy is he of all your favor and how cruel and tyrannical must they be who at this pinch would deny him effectual and seasonable help both with money and advice of the latter truth to tell the barons were in no wise sparing since they urged the king not to waste the blood and treasure of his suffering people on such a hopeless chimera but henry who was as firm in folly as he was unstable in well-doing pertinaciously returned to the charge notwithstanding the strange insensibility manifested by the peers to the comeliness of the young prince and the picturesque beauty of his sicilian dress for which the royal sire in the fond weakness of paternal vanity had condescended to bespeak the admiration of the stern assembly the aid was finally obtained through the interference of the pope's legate but on condition that the sovereign should consider himself bound by the oxford statutes the object of those statutes was to reduce the power of the crown to a mere nominal authority one day as the sovereign was proceeding by water to the tower he was overtaken by a tremendous thunderstorm and in great alarm bade the boatmen to push for the first stairs forgetting in his fright that they belonged to the durham house where leicester then dwelt the earl with unwelcome courtesy came to receive his royal brother-in-law as he landed from the boat telling him at the same time not to be alarmed as the storm was spent i am beyond measure afraid of thunder and lightning but by the head of god i fear thee more than all the thunder in the world replied henry with as fierce a look as he could assume to which leicester mildly rejoined my lord you are to blame to fear your only true and firm friend whose sole desire it is to preserve england from ruin and yourself from the destruction which your false counsellors are preparing for you henry far from confiding in these professions took the earliest opportunity of leaving the kingdom to seek assistance from the foreign connections of his queen in his absence the king and queen of scots arrived at windsor castle on a visit to queen eleanor a few days after henry's return john duke of bretagne came over to wed the princess beatrice the earl of leicester allowed the king and queen ample supplies for the entertainment of these illustrious guests the court at windsor had never been more numerously attended or magnificently appointed than on this occasion but there was a pervading gloom on the mind of the royal parents which the presence of their eldest daughter and the marriage of their second failed to dissipate the young queen of scotland passed the whole winter with her mother at windsor castle where she lay in of a daughter the state of henry's mind at the period preceding the baron's war may be gathered from his issuing directions to his painter master williams a monk of westminster to paint a picture for him of a king rescued by his dogs from an attack made upon him by his subjects 
Philip Lovell, the king's treasurer, is ordered by this precept, which was issued in the fortieth year of Henry's reign, to disperse to the said Master Williams the full charges and expenses of executing this picture, which is ordered to be placed in the wardrobe of Westminster, where the king was accustomed to wash his head. At this period the king and queen chiefly confined themselves within one or other of the royal fortresses of Windsor, or the tower, both of which were strengthened and prepared with additional defences, to stand a siege. After Henry had violated the provisions of Oxford, he took up his residence in the Tower of London, while Eleanor remained with a strong garrison to keep Windsor. The principal communication between these fortified palaces was by water. In 1261 died the queen's sister, Sancha, Countess of Cornwall, and Queen of the Romans, for whom the king and queen made great lamentations, and gave her a magnificent funeral. In that year the royal party gained such strength, that the Earl of Leicester found it most prudent to withdraw to the continent. Prince Edward returned to England, to guard the realm while King Henry went to Gascony, where his presence was required, and where he fell sick of Quartan Ague, which detained him there during the autumn. While Prince Edward was carrying on the war against the Welsh, Leicester's cause became more formidable, and in 1262, that mighty agitator returned almost at the same time with the king, to whom he caused the barons to present an address, requiring him to confirm the Oxford statutes, adding a defiance to all who opposed them, the king, the queen, and the royal children excepted. This exception may be regarded, all things considered, as a very remarkable piece of civility on the part of the reforming barons of the 13th century. One of the most influential of these was Roger Bigod, Earl of Norfolk and Suffolk, to whom in angry parlance King Henry said, What, Sir Earl, are you so bold with me, whose vassal peer you are? Could I not issue my royal warrant for threshing out all your corn? I, retorted the Earl, and could I not in return send you the heads of the threshers? Bold men would they have been who had ventured to undertake that office. A striking instance of the disregard of all moral restraints, among the high and mighty, in that reign of misery, may be seen in the lawless robbery committed by the heir apparent of the realm, on the treasury of the Knights Templar, in the year 1263. Those military monks were not only the masters of great wealth, but acted as bankers and money-brokers to all Europe, lending sums on rich pledges, at usurious interest. Queen Eleanor, at the commencement of the troubles in which her reckless counsels had involved the king, had deposited her jewels, for security, with this fraternity, who had advanced a sum of money upon them. On the return of Prince Edward from his victorious campaign in Wales, finding himself without the means of dispersing the arrears of pay which he owed his troops, and unwilling to disband men whom he saw his father's cause would require, marched straight away to the temple, and told the master that it was his pleasure to see the jewels of the queen his mother, as he understood they were not safely kept. On this excuse he entered the treasury, and broke open the coffers of many persons who had lodged their money, and pledges for security, in the hands of the Templars, and seized ten thousand pounds sterling, principally belonging to the citizens of London, which, together with the queen's jewels, he carried off to the royal fortress of Windsor. A few months afterwards the queen pawned these jewels a second time, to her sister's husband, the king of France, 
that monarch probably regarding the robbery of the Templars as a very small sin. The active part taken by Queen Eleanor and her eldest son in the mismanagement of the king's affairs at this critical period is recorded by Matthew Paris, who is certainly a credible witness, and one whom had every means of information on the subject, since, from the great respect in which his talents were held by King Henry, he was invited to dine at the royal table every day, and, as he himself states, frequently wrote in the presence and from the diction of the king. Neither Henry nor Eleanor were probably aware how oft that sly monk took notes of their foolish sayings and evil doings, for the example of distant generations. Enriching his chronicle, moreover, with many choice anecdotes, illustrative of the personal history of royalty in the 13th century. Robert of Gloucester, a contemporary, thus notices the proceedings of the queen, and Prince Edward's political opinions. The queen went beyond the sea, the king's brethren also, and ever they strove the charter to undo. They purchased that the pope should assoil, I wis, of the oath, and the charter, and the king, and all his. It was ever the queen's thought, as much as she could think, to break the charter by some woman's wrench, and though Sir Edward proved a hardy knight and good, yet this same charter was little to his mood. Many indeed were the wiles and evasions, very inconsistent with the stern and soldier-like plainness of his character in after-life, which were practiced by the valiant heir of England, while acting under the influence of his insincere mother, in the hope of circumventing the barons by fraud, if not by force. In this year, notwithstanding the reluctance of the queen, King Henry was induced to sign an amicable arrangement with the barons, by which he bound himself to confirm the provisions of Oxford. This agreement, which might have averted the storm of civil strife, was regarded with fierce impatience by some of the destructives of the 13th century, who, eager for plunder and a thirst for blood, finding they were likely to be disappointed in the object which had led them to rank themselves on the side of the reforming barons and their great dictator, Montfort, raised a dreadful uproar in London against the unhappy Jews, whose wealth excited their envy and cupidity. T. Wikes, a contemporary chronicler, thus details the particulars of this tumult, which was the prelude to a personal attack upon the queen. At the sound of St. Paul's great bell, a numerous mob sallied forth, led by one Stephen Buckerell, the Marshal of London, and John Fitzjohn, a powerful baron. They killed and plundered many of these wretched people without mercy. The ferocious leader, John Fitzjohn, ran through with his sword, in cold blood, Coke Ben Abraham, the wealthiest Hebrew resident in London. Besides plundering and killing five hundred of this devoted race, the mob turned the rest out of their beds, undressed as they were, keeping them so the whole night. The next morning they commenced the work of plunder with such outrageous yells, that the queen, who was then at the tower, seized with mortal terror, got into her barge with many of her great ladies, the wives and daughters of the noblest, intending to escape by water to Windsor Castle. But the raging populace, to whom she had rendered herself most obnoxious, as soon as they observed the royal barge on the river, made a general rush to the bridge, crying, Drown the witch! Drown the witch! At the same time pelting the queen with mud, addressing the most abusive language to her, 
and endeavoring to sink the vessel by hurling down blocks of wood and stone of an enormous weight, which they tore from the unfinished buildings of the bridge. The poor ladies were pelted with rotten eggs and sheep's bones and everything vile. If the queen had persisted in shooting the arch, the boat must have been swamped, or her vessel dashed to pieces, by the formidable missiles that were aimed at her person. As it was, she with difficulty escaped the fury of the assailants by returning to the tower. Not considering herself safe there, she took sanctuary at night in the Bishop of London's palace at St. Paul's, whence she was privately removed to Windsor Castle, where Prince Edward kept garrison with his troops. This high-spirited prince never forgave the Londoners for the insult they had offered to his mother. Though Eleanor had been a most unprincipled plunderer of the Jews, whenever opportunity served, she was accused of patronizing them, because great numbers of them had flocked into England at the time of her marriage with King Henry, the Provençal princes having always granted toleration to this people. Eleanor never forgot her terror at London Bridge, which had the effect of hurrying forward the civil war. At the time when the barons had agreed to refer their grievances to the arbitration of St. Louis, the brother-in-law of the queen, King Henry took Eleanor with him to France, and left her there in October 1264, with her children, at the court of her sister, Marguerite. The decision of St. Louis, though really a rational one, did not satisfy the barons, who protested against it on the grounds of family partiality, and England was forthwith involved in the flames of civil war. After Henry had placed his adored queen in security, and taken a tender leave of her and her young children, he returned to England to encounter the storm, with more spirit and manliness than was usual to his character. On Passion Sunday, Henry gained a great victory at Northampton over the barons. He took his rebellious nephew, the Earl of Leicester's eldest son, prisoner, together with fourteen of the leading barons. Henry used his victory with great moderation. At the castle of Tunbridge, the fair countess of Gloucester, the wife of the one of the most inveterate of his foes, fell into his hands, but he generously set her at liberty, with the courteous remark, that he did not war on ladies. So well, indeed, had the royal cause prospered in the commencement of the struggle, that when the rival armies were encamped within six miles of each other, near Luz, the barons sent word to the king that they would give him 30,000 marks if he would consent to a pacification. Prince Edward, who was burning to avenge the insults which had been offered to the queen his mother, dissuaded Henry from accepting these terms, and the Battle of Luz followed. The king and his miney were in the priory, when Simon came to field and raised his bannery. He showed forth his shield, his dragon full austere. The king said on high, Simon, je vous défie? The Battle of Luz was lost through the reckless fury, with which the fiery heir of England pursued the flying Londoners, in order to avenge their incivility in pelting his mother at their bridge. He followed them with his cavalry, shouting the name of Queen Eleanor as far as Croydon, where he made a merciless slaughter of the hapless citizens. When he returned to the field of battle with his jaded cavalry, he found his father, who had lost the support of all the horse, taken prisoner with his uncle, the king of the Romans, 
and Edward had no other resource than surrendering himself to Leicester, who conveyed him, with King Henry, as captive to the castle of Wallingford. The remnant of the royal army retreated to Bristol Castle, under the command of seven knights, who reared seven banners on the walls. The queen was said by some to be safe in France, but old Robert of Gloucester asserts that she was a spy, in the land for the purpose of liberating her brave son. Let this be as it may, she sent word to Sir Warren de Basingbourne, her son's favorite knight, one of the gallant defenders of Bristol, that Wallingford was but feebly guarded, and that her son might be released, if he and the rest of the Bristol garrison would attack it by surprise. Directly Sir Warren received the queen's message, he, with three hundred horse, crossed the country and arrived at Wallingford on a Friday, just as the sun rose, and, right against All Hallows Church, made the first fierce attack on the castle, and won the outermost wall. The besieged defended themselves furiously, with crossbows and battle engines. At last they called out to Sir Warren that, if they wanted Sire Edward, the prince, they should have him, but bound hand and foot, and shot from the mangonel, a terrific war engine used for casting stones. As soon as the prince heard of this murderous intention, he demanded leave to speak with his friends, and coming on the wall, assured them, that if they persevered in his mother's intentions, he should be destroyed. Whereupon Sir Warren and his chevaliers retired in great dejection. Simon de Montfort, pretending to be angry for the violence offered to the prince his nephew, carried off all his royal prisoners for safekeeping at Kenilworth Castle, where Edward's aunt, his countess, was abiding, and who offered her royal brothers and their sons all the solace she could. The queen, thus disappointed in the liberation of her gallant heir, soon after found a partisan, in a lady strongly attached to her. This was Lady Maud Mortimer. Lord Roger Mortimer had, much against the wishes of his lady, given his powerful aid to Leicester, but having received some affront since the victory of Lewes, he now turned a complacent ear to the loyal pleadings of Lady Maud, in behalf of the queen and her son. What all the valor of Sir Warren failed to accomplish, the wit of woman effected. Lady Maud Mortimer having sent her instructions to Prince Edward, he made his escape by riding races with his attendants, till he had tired their horses, when he rode up to a thicket, where Dame Maud had ambushed a swift steed. Mounting his gallant courser, Edward turned to his guard, and bade them, commend him to his sire the king, and tell him he would soon be at liberty, and then galloped off, while an armed party appeared on the opposite hill, a mile distant, and displayed the banner of Mortimer. Why should halt a long tail? He off-scaped so, to the castle of Wigmore the way soon he took. There was joy and bliss enow when he came thither, to the lady of that castle, Dame Maud de Mortimer. End of section 7Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.